0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, It's wonderful to see so many uh, friendly faces here this evening for Nick Grant's uh, book launch. Um, Nick is well known to almost everybody, but not quite everybody in the room. Um, So for those who don't know him, I will give him a little bit of an introduction before he tells us about the book. Um, So Nick has a PhD in history from the University of Leeds, and he's been a lecturer at the University of East Anglia since 2013. Uh, He's held fellowships at the Library of Congress, uh, where I met him, in 2010, and the John F. Kennedy Institute for North American Studies in Berlin. He's a historian of African American and black international history, and he's published work in the Radical History Review, in Palimpsest, a journal on women, gender, and the black international, and uh, shortly, um, a special issue, including uh, an article in the Journal of American Studies. Um, But really, it's his book... Uh, that we're here to celebrate this evening, that he's going to be talking to us about. Um, Winning Our Freedoms Together, African Americans and Apartheid, 1945-1960, to um, published by the University of North Carolina Press only a month or two ago, right? Um, So the format in terms of what we're going to do is that Nick is going to talk um, for a slightly unspecified period of time, between 20 and 30 minutes, right? Um, And I have a few very short comments to make and a couple of questions to ask. Um, before we open the floor to what I'm sure will be uh, an enthusiastic set of questions and answers. Um, So with that, I will hand over to Nick. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much, Nick.
1: Um, It's really uh, fantastic. Uh, Nick's kind of introducing me and being kind to give up his time as well. So as Nick mentioned, we kind of first met when we were doing our PhDs a long time, a fairly long time ago now in in Washington. And it's uh, great that we've kind of paralleled and kind of kept in touch and it's lovely to have him. Uh, kind of introducing me and, and, and kindly can ask asking some questions at the end. I just want to also say a massive uh, thank you to uh, John Bell, director here, for giving up the space as well um, and letting me uh, kind of talk about my book and, and have a launch event and for all of you guys for coming and giving up your Thursday evenings, it's is Thursday isn't it? Yeah, Thursday evenings and to see so many kind of familiar faces is really nice so thanks for, for coming. And yeah, I will talk for between 20 and 30 minutes. Um, And what I wanted to do today is to kind of, maybe a little bit obvious, but maybe to talk about the title um, of the book and where that first part, the winning our freedoms together comes from because it's a paraphrased uh, quote essentially from uh, this figure here, Paul Robeson. Uh, So I just want to give a little bit of background to that and then uh, delve into an aspect of the book which is looking at um, Paul Robeson's activism during... Um, the early Cold War, his relationship with the the anti-apartheid movement, but also crucially the forces that were directed at him by the state to try and keep him domesticated and in his words, exiled within the United States and prevent him from linking up with other movements for racial justice around the world. So it's just a kind of very small kind of aspect of the book. It appears in chapter three, I think, Um, as a way of maybe kind of introducing the the broader themes. Um, So that's what I want to do. Um, So, uh, yeah, in December 1954, um, a message from the actor, uh, singer, and activist Paul Robeson was read aloud at the annual conference of the African National Congress uh, in Durban in South Africa. And in this uh, very eloquent letter, um, uh, this eloquent letter effectively, I think, asserted Robeson's uh, status as, uh, in the words of his biographer, a citizen of the world. Uh, as well as commitment to his commitment to the struggle against apartheid. Um, so this is what he said. Um, he said, I know that I'm ever by your side, that I'm deeply proud of you, uh, that you are my brothers and sisters and nephews and nieces, that I sprang from your forebears. Uh, before ending his statement with the following rallying cry. Um, we come from a mighty, courageous people, creators of great civilizations in the past, dreamers of new ways of life in our own time and in the future, we shall win our freedoms together. Our folk will have their place in the ranks of those shaping human destiny. This defiant message uh, was delivered at a time of great personal and political hardship for Robeson. Uh, Known for his distinctive baritone singing voice as well as his leading roles on stage and screen, Robeson I think was one of the most instantly recognizable and famous African-American celebrities and icons of the early and mid 20th century. Uh, in addition to this, um, as he kind of progressed through his career, but also his po- uh, politics developed, and he travelled the world and encountered different cultures and political philosophies, uh, Robeson's commitment to social and racial justice was greatly strengthened and refined um, through, from the mid-1930s onwards. Um, Robeson persistently spoke out against racism and colonialism in this era. Uh, he was a committed supporter of organised labour and argued that world peace would only ever be a distant dream if the forces of capitalism, imperialism, and white supremacy continued to deny basic human rights to millions of people all over the world. Um, However, by the end of the 1940s, uh, Robeson's tireless questioning of uh, racism and growing support for anti-colonial struggles, not just in Africa, but also in Asia as well, placed him under a great deal of personal and political pressure. Uh, positioning firmly in the firing line of state forces that were directed at rooting out and suppressing so-called subversive influences in American society. I think denouncing racism and imperialism have always been a a dangerous undertaking, uh, well, anywhere in the world, but particularly in the United States. Um, And however, during the um, early years of the Cold War, I think this was an increasingly perilous stance for black activists to take. Um, So Robeson and other African-American activists, particularly those on the left, uh, often fell afoul of anti-communist politics in this era. Uh, In the period of McCarthy and the Second Red Scare, a a clear and consistent line was drawn that connected those who criticized the American government's record on race uh, and and drew that line between people making those points and suspected Soviet subversion. And the perceived need to prevent the spread of communism, I think, provided what was effectively a dubious uh, political and legal framework that was often used to justify the dismantling of organisations as well as targeting black activists who argued that America's inability to tackle white supremacy undermined its status and capacity for leadership in the world. And there's a great deal of, kind of historical literature and political literature on this that looks at the relationship between anti-communism, and race... Uh, and uh, the civil rights movement during the Cold War. Um, so famously, I think, Robeson was one of many of, the, of many black activists who fell victim to this repressive political climate. Um, he was widely condemned, in particular for a, state, a statement that he made at a 1949 Paris peace conference, uh, that, quote, it is unthinkable that American Negroes would go to war against the Soviet Union. And this was really uh, used to... Um, Criticise him as being unpatriotic, un-American, and potentially subversive. In fact, he didn't really say that uh, African Americans wouldn't go to war against the Soviet Union. He said they would be reluctant to do that um, because they didn't want uh, a third world war. Um, so I think that's a subtle but interesting difference. But the damage was done, and he was misquoted, and that uh, was spread fairly widely. Uh, Rosen's uh, work, as well with the anti-colonial uh, anti-colonial work, even with the as a, the chairman of a group called the Council on African Affairs which was a radical group of black anti-colonial activists based in New York, uh, was also cited uh, for justification, um, along with his statements in Paris, uh, to, for the State Department to remove his passport between 1950 and 1958. Uh, and essentially, the State Department believed at this time that it would be politically embarrassing if Robeson was allowed to criticise uh, Jim Crow segregation uh, and American foreign policy overseas. It would be politically uh, embarrassing for the United States. Uh, and as the attorney for the State Department told an appeals court uh, when Robeson was trying to win back uh, the right to his passport, um, this, attorney, um, this attorney basically said that Robeson's passport uh, needed to be withdrawn, quote, because in the past, during the concert tours of foreign countries, he had repeatedly criticised the conditions of Negroes in the United States. And I think this amounted to a clear attempt to, as I mentioned earlier, to domesticate Robeson and to isolate him, deliberately isolate him, from the network of anti-colonial activists that he built up both through his foreign travels um, and also his ties with the, uh, through his ties with the Council on African affairs um, a powerful political ideology anti-communism provided not just a, a language in the United States to uh, repress uh, certain kind of radical political movements uh, but also provided a global language uh, that could be used to silence anti-racist organizing across borders uh, in the book I also look at how the national Party used anti-communism to bolster suppression of anti-apartheid protests and often uh, drew direct uh, lessons from anti-communist repression in the US uh, and went in dialogue with state officials in that regard too. So as racial protests uh, became framed uh, at times as part of a worldwide communist uh, threat to freedom and democracy, black activists who compared Jim Crow to systems of colonial oppression uh, and were critical of America's self-pointed, uh, self-appointed title as the leader of the free world, increasingly faced harassment, arrest, and sometimes even imprisonment. Um, so given all of this, um, I think there may be two broad ways to look at Robeson's message uh, that he delivered to the ANC's annual conference in 1954 that I opened with, and that's behind me. I think one way to look at this uh, would be to see this as a metaphor for the obstacles that African Americans faced when trying to establish global networks that challenge white supremacy. And to see this as a moment uh, when powerful state forces made it incredibly difficult for black activists to talk about Jim Crow and apartheid as interrelated systems of oppression. Um, After all, Robeson could not address members of the ANC in person. Uh, He was confined to the United States Uh, fighting accusations that he was an agent of the Soviet Union. So obviously his message was read aloud, he couldn't go there and deliver it himself, Um, which the apartheid government wouldn't have allowed anyhow, and I can talk about that too. Um, However, and I think this is the argument I'm wanting to put forward uh, tonight, I think there's also an alternative way, a slightly different way of reading Robeson's letter to the ANC. In fact, I think given the repressive... Forces he faced that I've just mapped out, um, I think that this message of support, that that this message of support arrived in South Africa at all is politically significant. Uh, The fact that African nationalists heard these words at a time when the apartheid state was clamping down mercilessly on anti-apartheid protest amounted to what I think was a symbolic reminder of the exchanges uh, that had long connected anti-racist struggles uh, between the United States and South Africa. I think this was a fleeting but powerful moment of pan-African solidarity, an optimistic assertion that the struggle for rights and freedom would be successful, ultimately successful on both sides of the Atlantic, and a uh, hopeful insistence that the ANC and its allies would overthrow apartheid rule. Ultimately, Robeson's message achieved little in practical terms. Uh, It didn't reconfigure the domestic and international forces that worked to repress the anti apartheid movement will prevent ultimately African Americans from linking up uh, with black activists in South Africa. Um, it didn't uh, alter any laws and it didn't really usher in a new political moment. However, I think this declaration, his declaration to black South African activists that we shall win our freedoms together, shows how black radicals uh, continue to think and act globally during the darkest days of the second Red Scare, and continue to connect those struggles and continue to advance. Uh, a politics of black internationalism. And what I want to do for the rest of the talk is to explore that in a little bit more detail through a specific case study that features within the, the book itself. And this is the campaign uh, that Robeson and his allies in the United States mounted to restore his passport to it. Um, okay, so I'll give you, I'm not sure if I'm changing slides yet, no. Um, I'll give you a little bit of context uh, to this as well. Um, between 1945 and 1960, um, forty nations with a combined population of over 800 million people won their freedom from colonial rule. Right? Um, and however, even though this is a, a, a momentous moment in terms of the history of decolonization, uh, the early Cold War nevertheless, I think, represents a clear problem uh, in terms of the long history of African-American engagements with Africa. Indeed, uh, historians such as uh, Penny Von Eschen and Gerald Horn and others have argued that uh, in the U.S., the vicious anti-communism of the Second Red Scare uh, resulted in, in quote, the domestication of African-American anti-colonialism to such an extent that it brought uh, about, uh, in Penny Von Eschen's words, the collapse of the politics of the African diaspora. And their work and the work of others uh, documents how anti-communist repression, again, that I've been outlining already, decimated in particularly the black international left and prevented radicals and leftists in the United States from engaging in African anti-colonial politics, whilst at the same time effectively pressured more moderate figures, more liberal figures in terms of the black freedom struggle in the US, uh, to embrace their Americanism and to hold back in their criticisms of US foreign policy, because basically they didn't want to kind of suffer the same fate as someone as Paul Robeson did as well. And this is, I think, the conventional narrative, uh, which I agree with to a, a large extent. Uh, In the end, as, again, Penny Bernerschen argues, a Cold War (laughs) anti-communism, quote, left no room for the internationalism that had previously characterized black American politics in earlier periods, such as the mid-1940s. So I think the trials and tribulations of Paul Robeson uh, and, and the struggles that he faced in this era... Um, these have often been used to back up uh, these kind of arguments that look at the severing of ties between African-Americans and, and uh, African anti-colonial activists in particular, and these black international link, links that connected African-Americans to African liberation struggles uh, and how they were dismantled during the Second uh, Red Scare. And this is not to downplay that that certainly happened, uh, and that was... Uh, Black activists were operating from an increasingly limited, uh, with a limited set of resources and from very much on the back foot in that period. However, um, I think to a certain extent this analysis, this argument, sorry, and and this analysis obscures the ways in which uh, black radicals challenged racism and colonialism from these ever more limited and restricted spaces. Uh, indeed, um, I think this is a really telling quote uh, from uh, someone called Eslanda Robeson, who was Paul's wife, but also a leading figure on the Black Left in her own right, and in certain ways, as uh, a lot more kind of an interesting uh, approach to Africa than Paul Robeson himself. Uh, so you might want to be critical of me for not talking more about Eslanda Robeson by doing the book. Um, she argued uh, in a 1952 article, that uh, "The Cry: Freedom uh, Rings Through Africa." Quote. Um, that when their leaders are arrested and jailed, exiled and killed, the movements grow in strength and numbers, the protests become more numerous and widespread. So for aslanda uh, I think the fact that the state had to resort to these repressive measures provided further evidence that uh, the struggles that radical black activists were engaged in were morally justifiable. Um, and repression sometimes provided a shared language through which international alliances could be forged and sometimes maintained at the precise moment that they're also being placed under this intense political pressure. And I think black radicals deliberately drew attention to what they saw as similar experiences of state repression operating in the United States and in South Africa in terms of this framework, and used this as a means to articulate further parallels between the racial practices of both countries and to maintain a black internationalist vision. And... uh, I think essentially uh, these instances of repression were relatable incidents uh, that provided a stark reminder of how the Cold War could be used to stifle black efforts to challenge white supremacy around the world and to remind black activists that um, they needed to resist this globally and transnationally too. Um, And I think that the international response uh, to the US State Department's decision to withdraw Paul Robeson's passport provides a particularly telling example of how activists maintained their agency, engaged with and negotiated the state power during the early Cold War. And basically my, my kind of slight objection to the historiography of uh, Gerald Horne and Penny Von Eschen, although I agree with large swathes of it, is that um, if you accept that the politics of diaspora and black internationalism collapsed and African Americans didn't really engage with anti-colonial struggles to the same extent uh, in the 1950s that they'd done previously, uh, then you Where's the agency uh, in terms of um, how activists responded to this state oppression? Like, how do you do? You just accept that they gave up, and I don't think they did. And there's lots of evidence to the country uh, to kind of trace those uh, reactions. And Robeson and his allies uh, used his passport case to rhetorically underline the need for black activists to unite with one another across borders. Uh, In his position as uh, head of the Committee to Restore Paul Robeson's Passport, and that was a long-winded kind of organisation, the lawyer William L. Patterson argued, quote, that the far-reaching significance of the Robeson fight lies in its unifying potential. Outlining Robeson's uh, continuing commitment to freedom and democracy throughout the world, he affirmed that, quote, "Uh, today the voice of Paul Robeson is sorely needed (laughs) as the Negro people launch their winning fight for democracy and justice. People must be ready to support him actively, the victory of the Negro people in America will have a mighty impact upon liberation struggles of all mankind, and especially Asia and Africa. As this fight develops, America grows stronger, the demoralizing mist of white superiority grow weaker, and thus the cause for peace is furthered. The Robeson passport uh, fight is just beginning. The voice of Robeson must be heard throughout the world. So the restrictions placed on Robeson's mobility again provided a common cause around which black international connections could sometimes be launched and established. Robeson himself himself echoed this sentiment, arguing, quote, that when coloured peoples all over the world looked at his passport case, they would interpret it as, quote, a basic test of democratic principles. It's clear that many anti-colonial activists in Africa and throughout the black diaspora shared this view, and whilst it was by no means limited to just one country, anti-apartheid activists in South Africa openly condemned Robeson's treatment by the State Department and led calls for his passport uh, to be returned to him. Uh, Robeson was a popular and well-known figure in South Africa and his activities during the 40s and 50s were regularly reported on uh, in the anti-apartheid press uh, and in in particularly radical anti-government publications that hadn't quite yet been stifled by the white supremacist state in South Africa. Uh, Made publicly and often directly addressed at the US government, the majority of South African statements in support of Robeson argued it was their right as people committed to political self-determination to see and hear him speak and perform, as a message on behalf of the leading organisations of what was known as the South African Civil Disobedience Campaign stated, and this was a kind of mass protest civil disobedience movement that characterised much of the 1950s in South Africa. Uh, something called the Defiance Campaign that started in 1952, but also the Congress for the People that was launched in 1955, um, and then was cr- increasingly kind of stifled <coughs> effectively by the apartheid government. So this is where these kind of protest movements came out of. Um, But as this uh, message stated, and I'm aware I've got really long quotes here, which is something I had to tell my students not to do, but I'm doing it. Um, uh, We salute Paul Robeson as one of the most outstanding artists of our time, a great champion of the oppressed people, and a brave fighter for peace. He's a beloved citizen of the world, and the United States authorities have no right to deprive us of the privilege of listening to his gifted and magnificent voice. So by demanding to hear his voice, uh, to hear him speak, maybe to hear him sing, South African activists reinstated Robeson's status, uh, again, uh, to to paraphrase this quote, but also um, his biographer, Shirley Graham Du Bois, as a citizen of the world, uh, claiming him as one of their own. And in 1954, um, uh, effectively, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, I've jumped on a little bit there, um, but also, this was reiterated in 1954 when Robeson received another uh, public letter that was signed by, again, a, num- a number of prominent South African activists, including uh, the ANC's Walter Cizuli. Um So again, I think this comes up uh, in this quote. Uh, so Suzulu and others uh, wrote that when the United States government deprived you of your passport, they deprived the people of the world of your wonderful voice. It's not a personal move against you. It was a political move of worldwide importance. This is why we here in South Africa are interested in your action now be, uh, in the action now being taken by the Americans to try and get your passport restored to you. We want to hear you sing. We've heard your records. We want to see you and hear you and hear you yourself. So these global messages of support, um, and these are just a couple that Roberson received uh, from uh, South Africans, uh, helped reinforce political and ideological connections between African Americans and the anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, For Zuzulu and the ANC, the fact that Robeson's voice could be heard in South Africa was not enough. They demanded that these sonic uh, connections be transformed into physical ties, that Robeson be allowed to cross the Atlantic, uh, potentially, and lend his support uh, to the fight against apartheid and to address international audiences in terms of condemning racism and colonialism um, globally. And many of these statements directly called attention to the similarities that existed between state oppression in the United States and South Africa too. Uh, An article in the 1954 issue uh, of Advance directly criticised the US government in regards to Robeson's passport case. uh, Entitled A World Campaign to Free Paul Robeson and written, quote, on behalf of the progressive forces in South Africa, the article declared that um, 10 million oppressed non-whites and European Democrats in South Africa condemn the action of the US government in refusing a passport to Paul Robeson to go abroad, is it another blatant example of the way in which aggressive American imperialists are attempting to trample underfoot the hard-won and cherished rights uh, and cultural heritage of, um, uh, of the American people. It exposes, it exposes the claim of the American rulers that they are the champions of freedom as a hollow sham and mockery. So Robeson, again, his passport case Crucially here, I think provided anti-apartheid activists with an issue through which they could uh, not only only compare apartheid with Jim Crow and the system and the white supremacist systems in both countries and, and resist them, but also critique American power overseas and also America's relationship with the apartheid state, uh, which I haven't got time to go into at the moment but I could talk about in the questions. Um, and the article condemned Robeson's treatment in a way that I think essentially challenged the American creed and the long-held assertion that the United States was a guarantor of democracy throughout the world, and questioning, essentially, America's expansion into the world um, in the post-Second World War period. And I think these transnational solidarities that uh, were generated in response to Robeson's plight were also further strengthened by the fact that his own voice, his baritone voice, had on occasion um, provided backing for anti-apartheid protests in this era. Uh, In his autobiography, Robeson noted that, though, uh, again, in his own words, he was exiled within the United States, that, quote, through the written words by recordings and filmed interviews, I continued to be connected to my allies abroad. Uh, Robeson's songs sometimes provided the soundtrack to mass rallies uh, and acts of defiance in South Africa. Again, during the defiance campaign, these organised mass protests that brought tens of thousands of South Africans out onto the street um, uh, to protest apartheid laws. Uh, and in response to that, a New York Times article reported that, um, quote, several thousand non whites marched into Fordsburg Freedom Square to the tune of Paul Robeson's songs played over a loudspeaker. They carried banners uh, reading, Down with Apartheid and Down with Passes. And Robeson himself was particularly proud of this fact, commenting that, quote, these South Africans aren't afraid of baiting. They march in thousands with raised, clenched fists. They sing their songs of protest, including some of mine, may I modestly add. They say quite sharply and plainly that they want their uh, youth alive to struggle uh, for for the independence of Africa. So through this act of singing his protest songs, Robeson was able to imaginatively march alongside South Africa's black resistors, despite his enforced physical absence. As he commented in a message to the African National Congress, um, I've been very happy to learn that my recorded voice is heard among you, and has perhaps contributed in some small way to your great courage and strength in carrying forward your banner in the face of the most cruel per- persecution and oppression. But I wish that my contribution, that the contribution of all of us here in the United States who support your cause could be much greater. I think you kind of see the frustration uh, that, um, in Robeson's situation that he can't contribute in the ways that he wants to, but he's still kind of insisting in, in terms of connecting these struggles. I think Robins' passport case ultimately enabled African-Americans and black South Africans um, to at least some extent challenge racism on a global level and to challenge crucially America's um, expansion into Africa uh, during the early Cold War. Um, The way in which this was achieved, um, the metaphors that were employed and the alliances that were formed help us to better understand how black radicals didn't give up or didn't kind of uh, suddenly kind of disappear during the repressive phase of the anti um, of the anti-communist era of the second red scale, <coughs> um, but responded to that in, in interesting uh, ways that I think show their agency in terms of responding to state uh, repression. So a kind of brief conclusion. So I think I'm running more than like 20 minutes. Good. Half, so yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wrap up. Um, Ultimately, I think Robeson's passport case uh, is testament to the perseverance of black activists and their belief that the struggles against racism in South Africa and the United States were were interconnected and needed to be uh, connected in various ways. And these exchanges are suggestive of how black activists responded to state repression, continued to speak truth to power, and found spaces where they could maintain their political agency when faced with very challenging circumstances. Evoking the spirit of Robeson's insistence that African-Americans and black South Africans could uh, win their freedoms together, um, the book uh, I'm talking about tonight traces this political work. um, Noting the complexity of uh, these transnational black exchanges as well as their achievements and some of their limitations as well. Um, I I try essentially to show how African-Americans and black South Africans um, struggled but still were able to navigate state power in ways that challenged white supremacist politics on both sides of the Atlantic. And looking beyond Robeson, I tried to do this in the book by tracing how black activists operating across the political spectrum, so looking at African American liberals and moderates as well as radical figures such as Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, and the Council on African Affairs. Um, so working across that political spectrum, I look at how those activists navigate this repressive political climate in different ways. Um, I also tried to consider how not only how these connections uh, function. Sorry, not only like tracing these actual connections, but looking at how they functioned and how they were constructed, as well as how they were framed, paying particular attention to how cultural exchanges uh, provided an uh, important way of informing political solidarities between Black activists in both countries too. And ultimately, I argue, and uh, that although anti-communism, and this is quite like a, I think a hopeful analysis. Um, had a devastating impact on the lives and activists of black radicals that many continue to insist that the struggle against apartheid and Jim Crow was still bound up with one another. And I think despite the best efforts of government officials on both sides of the Atlantic, bonds that connected African-Americans and black South Africans, at least this is what I argue, ultimately survived the repressive anti-communist politics of the early Cold War. So I'll wrap up then. Thank you.